Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, church, this morning, we have the privilege of keeping all of our youngins in the room, so they're going to stay with us, all right, and on this third Sunday. Uh, but if you are new with us, I just want to say a word of welcome to you. My name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you're with us. When you came in, you should have found a card that's like this on a seat somewhere around you. And on one side, that's a place for a little information about yourself, so we can send you some information about us. You can also tick there that if you would like to receive our weekly newsletter, we'd be happy to send that to you. On the other side, that's a place for prayer requests. And I would just encourage you this morning, if there are things that you're asking God for, let us petition with you. But if there are great works that you want to give thanks to God for, let's share those as well. And let's give, let us give thanks to God alongside of you for how he's working in your life, the life of your family, or the life of your friends. If you fill out one of those cards, there is a box at the back of the room on the kiosk there where you can drop it, and we'd be delighted to connect with you or pray with you uh, or give thanks to the Lord with you for what he's doing. I invite you this morning to turn with me to Psalm 96. It's our text this morning, Psalm 96. As I read it for our hearing, it'll be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along there, if you don't have a copy in front of you. Uh, But we'll continually refer back to it. So if you have a copy with you, I'd encourage you to open it up. Psalm 96, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist writes these words. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall the trees of all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is God's word. Church, small habits tend to make a bigger difference in our lives than grand gestures, right? They tend to make a much bigger difference. We see this all the time in our relationships, okay? Now, there's some of us who are very skilled at grand romantic gestures, all right? We're just like a a, a bleeding heart, right? Just a romantic at heart, right? These grand gestures. So once or twice a year, maybe on an anniversary or on a birthday, right? Man, you go all out. Pull out all the stops. Make reservations at True Lux, okay? Or Three Forks. 
depending upon your disposition, right? So make re- you, you buy tickets to the ballet or the theater, right? Purchase favorite flowers and candies and arrange the babysitting, right? So that the other individual has nothing to do. And then you put rose petals on the comforter with those little chocolate mints on the pillow of your own home, right? So when you come home, everything is set and ready to go. So you can make these grand romantic gestures once or twice a year in your marriage that are really, really over the top. And let me say, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Go big or go home, that's what they say. (laughs) However, what will make a bigger difference in the quality of your relationship with your spouse are the smaller daily habits you develop. Habits of communication, habits of affection or of encouragement or of quality time. These smaller daily habits will make a bigger difference in the quality of your relationship than those big grand gestures that you might make every so often. And church, I would tell you the same is true in our spiritual lives. See, we can make grand gestures to God once in a while, but the habits that we engage in regularly will shape or form us more than those big moments. See, we can attend a conference and hear great preaching or go to a concert and listen to great music, and we can sing with all the gusto that we can muster, right? I surrender all, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. Right, we can sing that with all of our might or we can sing, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. I will not be shaken. We can have these big moments and make these big declarations and gestures towards God, but the, it will be the habits that you develop that will shape and form your life more than those grand declarations that you might make toward God. See, if the words of those songs are to have any real meaning to us, we must develop holy habits that will truly lead us to surrendering all to Jesus and living daily in his presence, as the song goes on to say, and building all of our life for the rest of our life upon the firm foundation of his love for us so that we wouldn't be shaken. The only way that's gonna happen is if we develop habits that will shape and form us Now we're in the midst of a series entitled Disciplined Discipleship, learning to order our everyday ordinary lives around the message and mission of Jesus by developing habits that will shape and form us more into his image in spiritually healthy ways. Last week we took a look at being shaped by the word. And we talked about developing the habit of systematic and careful and communal, in other words, with other people in an applicational reading of the scriptures. This week, we want to take a look at the habit of worship with a message that I've entitled, Singing a New Song. Now listen, over the course of my sabbatical, we had the privilege of visiting a variety of different churches, okay? We went to Friendship Baptist Church in Rockwall and experienced their service, which is a very expressive gospel-style service. Listen, there were shouts of praise and some talking back in the sermon. It's like, hallelujah to the hallelujah. We also went to St. Benedict's, which is an Anglican congregation in Rockwall, a very highly liturgical service with candles and with bells and hymns and readings and reflections. We went to Redeemer Presbyterian Church in downtown Rockwall. By the way, we were Redeemer before they were. (laughs) 
they called me and asked me if they could change, if, if there'd be too much confusion if they changed their name. I said, no, you guys go for it. And listen, though it was not as quite as high church as St. Benedict's, it was also not as low church as our Baptist and non-denominational brothers and sisters. See, there are churches all across the globe this morning who are worshiping through different traditions, different styles in their services, some with very high church liturgy, some with very low church liturgy, but they are worshiping the same God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ if they are a church that's grounded in Scripture. And they've been called forth by the Holy Spirit, and one of the primary ministries of any local church is worship. It's worship. It's also one of the habits that forms Christians and has formed Christians from the days of the apostles all the way to today. And it's f- they've fostered that habit in their lives and it's formed them into the image of Christ. So we wanna talk about the habit of worship this morning. And as we do so, we're looking at Psalm 96 and so let's ask this question. What does Psalm 96 teach us about worship? And here's the big idea this morning, church, that worship is our response to God's reign. That's what worship is, our response to God's reign. If you look at the language of the psalm, and you look at all the words in that psalm that have something to do with kingship, have something to do with ruling, you'll find there's several. In verse 10, the psalmist writes, say to the nations, the Lord reigns. In other words, he is sovereign. He is in control. He is governing and ruling over everything that he has created. In addition, we see the word majesty in verse six. And when we see that word, that language, we often associate it with kings or rulers, right? Those who in those days wore fine clothing like purple robes that signified the color of royalty or they wore crowns that were crafted from precious metals and jewels or they sat on elevated thrones right, that were ornately carved out of wood or, or, or cast out of metal. Right? We, we, we tend to think of kings and rulers when we hear that word majesty. Furthermore, we see in verse five that the Lord made the heavens And then in verses 11 to 13, how all the earth is called upon to praise him. The seas and the trees, the forest and the fields, the heavens and the earth, and everything in between those things, which includes everything that is, which includes all the peoples and the families of the earth we see in the text, which also includes me and it also includes you. All things are called upon to worship this great king. So this psalm is a celebration of God's reign, of his sovereignty, of his rule over all the earth. Now, most modern commentators, listen, believe that this psalm originated, listen closely, all right, as an annual liturgical coronation of the Lord as king. You're like, what in the world is that? So every year, on the new year, at the new year, Every year, they would gather and ceremonially, that's what liturgical is, right? They had this, cere- this ritual, this ceremony that they repeated, and coronation means to enthrone or install someone as a king. 
So every year they were gathering together and participating in this, this ritual of installing God as king. You're like, what in the world is that? It's the same thing that we do every Christmas and Easter, right? Let me see if I can break it down for you that way. See, every Christmas when we gather, right, we're celebrating what? The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Every Easter, whenever we gather, we're celebrating the resurrection of God, or a resurrection of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're celebrating those things every year, remembering those things to be true every year. The same thing was true of ancient Israel. Every year, they gathered to install God as king at the outset of the new year and to say that he rules and reigns over everything, just like we gather at Christmas and Easter to remember those things. Now, it is not the case at Christmas that Jesus is being incarnated every year. There's not some virgin out there giving birth every 12 months, right? Nor is it the case that every Easter when we gather, Jesus is being resurrected every year. We're celebrating something that's already true. It's already true. And that's exactly what Israel was doing with Psalm 96. Every year they were using this psalm to gather and to celebrate the truth that God rules over everything and everyone. And installing, coordinating, enthroning him as king. Now, so once again, this psalm is a celebration of the Lord's sovereign rule and governing authority over all that he's made but it also commands us to do something in response, right? Worship is our response to God's reign. God is reigning, how should we respond? And the psalmist tells us, in fact, throughout the psalm, there are multiple commands that are given to the people of how they ought to respond to the reign of this great God. I'm gonna give you a few of them this morning. Listen, if you will, if you will go on this ride with me, You might be shouting by the end. The first thing, he says we ought to sing. Now singing is rather self-explanatory. We see that in the verse one. See, we along with many other churches feature this as a large part of our church service every single week. Singing is a part of worship. It was a part of worship in the Old Testament. That's what many of the Psalms were. They were songs to be led by the temple temple, uh, vocalists that the congregation would participate in as they worshiped God. They were to sing. We're commanded to do it. So let me just say a brief word about that. Listen, if you're, if you're one of those dudes, okay, men, who are like, I'm just gonna sit here, watch the words on the screen, right? If you're kind of detached dude, you gotta take that up with God because he commands us to sing. Second, we are to ascribe to God. In verses seven to eight, the psalmist commands all peoples of the earth to ascribe glory and strength to the Lord. Now to ascribe means this, means literally this, to give something to someone, to attribute something to someone, to say something is true about someone, about their nature or their character. For instance, if I say, I ascribe early playoff exits to the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> no matter their regular season, accomplishments, 
Awards, early exits belong to them. Like when I say bobbled snap, some of you have like flashbacks to this cold day in Seattle and Tony Romo for some reason taking the snap as they try to kick the field goal. Or if I say, but it was a catch. Some of you like blood pressure rises, right? And you just get angry. This is just, it's just who they are. Right? Once again, this year, one and done. It's their nature. It's their character. It's what's true about them. I ascribe that to them. Now, when the author calls us, I'm just having fun. Now, when the author calls us to ascribe something to the Lord, he says we should say that glory belongs to God. We should say that strength is, belongs to Him, that He is significant, He is weighty. There's a heaviness about God that he's full of worth and value. That's what glory is. We ought to say that he's strong, he's powerful, mighty, and full of vigor, able to accomplish his ends. They are attributes of God's nature. They belong to him. So in our worship, listen, catch this. We're singing things that are true about God to God. That's what worship is singing things that are true about God to God, ascribing those things to him. Third, we are to bless, bless. The Hebrew word, says, the Hebrew word translated bless literally means to kneel down before. To adore, in fact, some commentators say it means, the, the nuance of it here is it means to adore on bended knees. To adore on bended knees. Now this is not the boys to men song from the mid 90s, okay? We're not on bended knee adoring our children or our spouse or our girlfriend or whoever it was. Rather, we are adoring the name of God is what the text says. His reputation, his character, his essence. In this posture of humility with our knees bent, we're commanded to do this, to bless his name. As we sing true things about God, blessing his reputation in a posture of humility. Fourth, we are to tell. We are to tell. In the text, that Hebrew word literally means to bear news. To bear news. And in the form that it's found here, listen, this is so good. It often means, it takes the nuance of meaning to make someone glad with good news. To make someone glad with good news. Now, Look at the news we are to make someone glad with. Now, this someone could include ourselves, all right? When you get good news, it makes your heart happy, doesn't it? Makes you glad. Look at the news we are to gladden our and others' hearts with. It is the news we are to tell of the Lord's salvation. Tell of his salvation. Now, the ancient Israelites who were first reading this psalm, they had good news of his salvation to tell. Right, they could look back on their deliverance from, Is, uh, from Egypt. Right, when God shows up, sends Moses down into Egypt, all the plagues, the firstborn son, the Passover lamb, and they slay the lamb. They cover the doorposts in blood. The death, angel of death passes over, and the, finally the Egyptians, Pharaoh releases them, pursues them to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They go through. He comes crashing down on the Egyptians. God has delivered them. 
He's delivered, so they had news of God's salvation to tell. But church, that deliverance was but a shadow. A shadow of the deliverance that was to come. A shadow of the deliverance that would happen whenever the true Passover lamb would be slain. And his blood would cover, not only cover our sins like those lambs did, but would cleanse our sin. You don't believe me on the difference of that. Go read the book of Hebrews. Listen, the blood of Jesus not only covers our sin, but it cleanses us. So let's keep building. We're singing, ascribing things to God. God, this is true about you. We're blessing his name, his reputation, and we're telling the story of his salvation in our songs as we sing together. As a foundational understanding of worship, we are singing about the gospel, singing the salvation story over and over again to gladden our hearts. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just have to sing, right, because my heart feels heavy. And we're commanded to do this. Fifth, to declare. That Hebrew word means to recount or count or relate. And listen, it is the glory of God made known in his marvelous works, the author says, that we are to count, recount, and relate. Now, I don't know why, but earlier this week, I had the count from Sesame Street pop into my head. I can just hear him saying, like, one marvelous work, oh, oh, oh. Right? Two marvelous works, oh, oh, oh. Three, right, and, and so forth. But that's exactly what we are to do. Count up all the marvelous and miraculous things that God has done. And then describe and narrate them, recount them. Tell the story of them, declare them to the nations, he says, to others, those who are far from God. Relate those things. Tell about God to those who are far from him. So in worship, we're counting up these amazing things God has done, praising him for them in the present, and in so doing, we're declaring his glory to the nations, saying, look at what our God has done. We're commanded to do this. Sixth and finally is the word worship. This word literally means to bow down before someone who is your superior. And in so doing, you were reflecting the posture of your heart with the posture of your body. Demonstrating submission to them, deferring to them, acknowledging their superiority. And the psalmist says, bow down to the Lord. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, he says. Other translations say the beauty of his holiness. In other words, we're to worship God by doting on his holiness, finding it to be attractive, considering his set-apartness to be stunning, his purity to be praiseworthy, finding his blessedness to be beautiful. And as we dote on him, the psalmist says that we tremble before him. And I love the way John Calvin puts it when he writes, to tremble before his face. It means that we should prostrate ourselves 
as before him when we consider his majesty. Not that he would deter us from drawing near to him, but we should esteem it our greatest pleasure and enjoyment to seek his face, but he would have us humbled to the right and serious worship of God. This idea of worship, worshiping God, trembling before him, bowing before him, it communicates this sobriety or seriousness in our worship. Not rigidness, but seriousness. And we're commanded to do this. So you put all these things together, right? Let's add them up. So we're commanded to sing, ascribing true things about God to God, adoring the name of God and reputation of God, singing about God's great salvation in Jesus Christ, making known all the great things he has done for us to the nations in a posture of humility and submission bowed down before him in our lives. This is worship. And we are commanded to do it. So now do you see why I say the big idea is worship is our response to God's reign. Our response to God's reign. Now, I think that's pretty good, but it gets better. The psalmist not only tells us what to do, but he also goes on to give us reasons why we ought to do it. In other words, he says, this is what you're to do. This is who God is. This is how you're to respond. But let me put some reasons underneath your feet to bolster your response. And he gives us one great reason with three expressions. And the reason is this, church, that God is great. God is great. It's what he says in the text. That he is great. And the way the word great, listen, it's used here is to describe God in terms of his importance. God in terms of his prominence. And that word, <laughs> this is what I found interesting this week as I did a little study, a little digging. Found that, that word oftentimes when it's used in Hebrew it describes something that is increasing or something that is expanding in its greatness. So in other words, God is so great that you cannot put a cap on his greatness. You cannot confine or contain his greatness. His importance and his prominence are ever increasing and ever expanding forever. That got me to thinking. You know, scientists tell us that our universe is ever expanding. In 1929, Edwin Hubble, the namesake of Hubble Space Telescope, provided the first observational evidence for this phenomenon. Using the largest telescope of his time, he discovered that the more distant a galaxy is from us, the faster it appears to be receding into space. So from this, he hypothesized that the universe is an expanding uniformity in all directions. It's constantly expanding. And in fact, in 2010, images, this image from the Hubble Space Telescope, you can see it on the screen, 
were released showing an area that cosmologists have dubbed the deep field. Cosmologists, by the way, are just those who study the cosmos, right? So the deep field, they pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at the deep field and began to capture images. And in this image, they've identified what they believe to be 15,000 other galaxies that exist a long way away. <laughs> Some of them 13 billion light years away. 13 billion years it would take to get to them. And they, they, they hypothesize that if, there's, if we can see those, there's probably even more beyond that that we still cannot see as the universe is ever expanding. And so that got me to thinking this. From a theological perspective, why would the universe be ever expanding? I'm not a physicist. I'm a pastor. So from a theological perspective, why would the universe be ever expanding? And here's why I think that is. From a theological perspective, this is taking place because a fixed universe cannot keep up with the ever-growing and expanding greatness of God. Psalm 19.1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. So when you look up at the sky and you see the heavens above, they are speaking to us about the greatness of God about the glory of God. And so a fixed universe cannot, cannot contain the glory of God. So it's ever expanded because God's greatness continues to multiply throughout history. That is not a scientific explanation. That's a theological assertion. God is great, and his greatness can't be capped, checked, confined, or contained. So he's worthy of our worship. Now consider these three expressions. The way his greatness shows up. First, he outranks all others. He outranks all others. In verse four, we're told that because God is great, he is greatly to be praised. In other words, his praise is consonant or consistent with his person. Because he is great, his praise should be great. His praise should be ever-expanding just as his prominence is ever-expanding. Now listen, let me see if I can break it down for you this way. When a celebrity is on the rise, okay, on the proverbial come up, they get more and more attention from all sorts of places and people, don't they? Traditional media outlets, social media outlets, the day-to-day -day conversations that people are having in workplaces, around water coolers, or in school hallways. They get more and more attention because people become enamored with them, fixated upon them, captivated by them. The, the way they look, how they sing, how they perform on the court or on the field, they become fixated upon them. And as a result, their prominence grows. As it grows and their praise grows. So they get invited on all kinds of talk shows and interviews. You see their pictures on more and more covers. They are the subject of more stories and are asked to tell their story in more interviews. Right, because as their prominence grows, so does their praise. But I wanna say something to you this morning, church. No matter the celebrity you can think of, no matter the degree of all-star they are or rock star they are, 
The greatness of God has expanded faster, further, and it will expand forever. Because he's the most prominent person on the planet. He outranks all others. Listen, God is more prominent than Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. (laughs) Even when they go out on a date with Patrick Mahomes and his wife. He's more prominent than the Kardashians or Beyonce. He's more prominent than Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any presidential candidate, king, despot, or warlord you can think of. He's more prominent than any social media influencer you might follow. He is more prominent, listen, students, than the boy or the girl you are crushing on right now. And more prominent than your best friend. The question is not whether or not God is more prominent and important than anyone, anywhere, at any time, because the answer to that question is always a resounding yes. The question for you and I, rather, is this. Is God the most prominent person in your universe? Is he the most prominent person in your life? Does he captivate and thrill your heart? Are you enamored with and fixated upon him? Is the greatness of his importance, listen, is it continually moving up and to the right in your life? Is becoming more prominent in your life, more important in your life? day to day, month to month, year to year, so that his praise rises more greatly today than it did a year ago. It is true that God outranks all others in his greatness, but is it true that he surpasses all others in your life? Second, way it exp- his greatness expresses itself, he outdoes all others. Listen, there's a footnote in the Revised Standard Version of this psalm next to the word idols in verse five that says, or things of naught. In other words, idols or things that are in fact nothing. In other words, they are powerless. That's why it's translated worthless and pointless. And yet it is these powerless, worthless, and pointless idols that often entertain our imaginations. They capture our minds, they hijack our affections, and they can take our hearts into bondage. Now the contrast in the text couldn't be more severe. While the greatness of God is held up high and celebrated, the worthlessness of idols is pushed down low and lamented. Because they are worthless, they cannot do anything for us. Listen, your idol of human approval cannot do what you want it to do for you. Your idol of financial security is powerless. It cannot do what you want it to do for you. Your idol of comfort and leisure is meaningless. It leaves you purposeless because you're wandering from one vacation and one hobby to another. Your idol of achievement is valueless because it cannot do what you want it to do for you. Your political party or ideology as the object of your hope and trust, it will never do for you what you want it to do for you. Your idol of self-expression Listen, self-expression, that idol, it is meaningless because true meaning cannot be found inside. It is a gift given from the outside that you learn to live into. And in verse five, listen, the counterpart to the worthlessness of idols is the Lord made the heavens. 
In other words, one way God stands in contrast to these worthless idols is his ability to do something in general and, or everything in general and something in particular that he made the heavens. And if he has the power to make the heavens, then he has the power to do all things. All things. This is why. This is why. In verses 11 to 13, the psalmist calls on the entire created order that God has made, the trees and seas along with their inhabitants, the forest and fields along with all that's in them, the heavens and the earth to praise God, and the reason he calls on creation to praise God. Now listen, if you go with me here for a second, this is gonna get really good. The reason he calls on uninterrupted praise is the judgment of God that is coming. He says in verse 13, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Now why would God, or or the psalmist, call on all creation to erupt in praise when God comes to judge the peoples of the world? To answer that question, you have to understand that throughout the Bible, there are always two sides to God's judgment. On one side, one side relates to those who reject God's claim over their life. They don't acknowledge him as their rightful king. They refuse to acknowledge him as the most prominent person on the planet or in their lives. And they cling to their worthless idols, believing the idols can do for them what only the creator, covenant Lord can do for them. So they live in rebellion and hard-hearted unrepentance. And listen, this side of God's judgment, those who experience that side of the coin, so to speak, they will experience God's judgment as, among other things, an unbearable chaos. Unbearable chaos. Here's why, because the world that they've built for themselves, when God comes to judge, will be torn apart. The order that they've created for themselves will be upended. No longer be that way, and there will be an unbearable chaos because their world will come unraveled. Everything they thought was right side up, they will come to see is upside down, and that judgment will bring about chaos in the world that they have ordered for themselves. On the other side of God's judgment, it relates to those who have received God's claim over their lives. They've embraced it, acknowledged him as their rightful king and the most prominent person on the planet, and in their life today, And they let go of their worthless idols and turn to worship the God in whose image they have been created, the creator and covenant maker, because they know only he can do for them what they need done for them. Now before I go any further, I I wonder this morning which of those two sides you will fall on. Which of those two sides you will fall on? And I wanna say to you this morning that if you wanna fall, I don't know what we wanna call it, heads or tails, on the second side, and experience his judgment in the way that the second group does in a moment. All you must do is place your faith and confidence in his son whom he sent as a sacrifice for your sin. I would love to visit with you about that today after we're done. But see, this second group will not experience God's judgment as unbearable chaos, but as unbelievable calm. Because on that day, God's gonna renew and redeem 
those who've embraced his kingship in their lives. He, and on that day, he will also renew and restore the created order to operate the way that it should. See, while one order is torn down, the order that's been established by those who reject God, one, another order is being built up through God's judgment. So when God comes to judge the nations, the created order will rise up in exaltation and joy and gladness and rejoicing and song because creation is gonna be set right. It'll no longer be writhing in the pangs of childbirth, right, with tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and blizzards and floods and wildfires and the ravaging, devastating effects of war. Now let me see if I can make this real simple for you this morning. Listen, in every great spy movie, where is this going? In every great spy movie, when it comes time to execute the plan that's been conceived in the minds of the heroes, right, the protagonists, the good guys, uh, they all got together in some coffee shop diner, sketched it out on a napkin, and now they're gonna go execute it, right? They're gonna get it done. Before, before they leave, all to go to their requisite parts, right? All to go to do the things that they need to do in order for the plan to be a success. They look at each other and they say, synchronize your watches, right? So that we're all on the same timetable. So that we're all moving together. So that you're doing your part and I'm doing my part and they're doing their part all at the same time exactly when it needs to happen. And listen, all I'm trying to say to you this morning, church, is this, is that history, the history of the peoples of the world and nature, God's action in both, are synchronized. They're synchronized. They're in tune with one another. That's why the psalmist calls upon creation to be glad when God comes to judge. This is why Paul writes in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The this hope in verse 24 that we're waiting for with patience in verse 25, that word this is a pronoun. It stands in for something that's already been talked about. And what's already been talked about is the revealing of the sons of God, the full redemptions of our bodies, and the healing of all creation. That's our hope. Now, history and nature, they are synchronized. And it is only God who can put all things right. He will judge when he comes again upon the face of the earth in the return of Jesus Christ with righteousness and faithfulness. Now, don't you see now? Your idols are worthless. They are powerless. They are impotent to put all things right because God outdoes all others. Third, He outshines all others. 
There are several attributes in verse six that are listed there, but I wanna hone in on one of them in the time that we have left. The psalmist says that splendor and majesty are before him. See, the word translated before him literally means at the face of. Now, we all know that a person's face, it, it identifies something about them, right? We recognize them consistent with the, 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 their face, what they look like to us. But it also can reflect their attitudes and their sentiments, their disposition, right? We would call it their countenance, right? Their countenance. As such, listen, the face in the Old Testament came to be considered a substitute for the person, the part for the whole. So when the psalmist says splendor and majesty are before him, or at the face of God, he's literally saying that splendor makes up God's countenance. You see it in his face. And you see this word splendor show up in other places in the Psalms, like Psalm 104, verse one, where the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. In other words, when God gets up in the morning and he's shuffling through the closet, he's looking for what to wear. He covers himself with light. That is his clothing, that is his garment. See, there's a radiance to God that is brighter than any amount of lumens that could come out of an LED bulb. It's brighter than the most powerful laser beam ever conceived by an engineer. It's brighter than the sun itself. Now listen, we who are on this side of the cross know that the splendor of God, the brilliance and radiance of God was made known to us in the face of Jesus Christ. There's an interesting passage and many of us are familiar with in Matthew 17 on the heels of Matthew 16 where Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Immediately after, he says, do that. He says to his Peter, James, and John, come with me. And they go up onto a mountain. And upon that mountain, we read in Matthew chapter 17 that Jesus is transfigured before them. And I want you to hear what it says in Matthew 17 too. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. In other words, when the veil is lifted from their eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is, what they see is this blinding, brilliant light. His splendor in the face of Jesus Christ, which is why the author of Hebrews is gonna say in chapter one, verse three, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the king on high. He sat down there, but when he was here, he was the radiance of the glory of God, the brilliance of the glory of God, the light of the glory of God, as Peter, James, and John had a glimpse of in Matthew 17. He outshines all others, church. I wanted the bulk of the message this morning, and I was just trying to make an impression on us. <laughs> an impression that we walk away here with. 
But I want to give you two brief applications of what do we do with all this. And the first one is this, develop the habit of personal worship. Back in verse you'll notice the frequency with which we are to do this day to day. Day to day. Now this doesn't mean that we have to gather for a worship service every day. We're not coming here at Ivy at 4 a.m. before they open, right? Rather, it means that we ought to gladden our hearts with the news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ every day when we wake up, every night when we lie down, every drive into the office, every drive on the way back home, day to day. This is the habit of personal worship. We're gladdening our hearts with the news, good news of the gospel. And then we're submitting ourselves once again today to his leadership in our lives, to his authority in our lives. So just as Paul says in Romans 12, that we're offering, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We're doing that day to day. We're preaching and reminding ourselves of the gospel, right? We're singing that. Oftentimes I find that to be true in my life. I'm riding in the car, I'm listening to a song, it's singing the good news to me, and I'm singing the good news to myself and singing the good news to God. And I find that it leads me to a place of wanting to submit more of my life to him and present more of my body to him as a spiritual act of worship. This is personal worship. And I want to say there is no substitute for it. There is not. Second, develop the habit of corporate worship. And I want to say to you this morning, church, these two have an interplay with each other. Right? When you're engaged in personal worship day to day, right? whether that be meditating upon Scripture, singing songs to God and about God, things that are true about Him, when you're doing that day to day, and then you show up here on a Sunday morning, and we gather together and lift our voices as one, there is a richness to that that would not be present had we not been day to day. And oftentimes, when we show up here on Sunday mornings and we're beat up and we're bruised and we're hurting and we're oozing stuff because of life, and we hadn't been day to day in worship, when we gather in corporate worship, when that's a habit in our lives, and we gather together with the saints to sing, we come off of that and we're inspired to do day to day. There's an interplay between those two things. You don't have one without the other. It's hard to have one without the other, I'll say it that way. See, corporate worship is a habit, and I'm afraid that far too many of us in our modern mindsets have neglected corporate worship for sports leagues, for hobbies and leisure, for inclement weather, for good weather, (laughs) either way, or prioritizing in-town guests or any number of various reasons. But let me ask you a question as we close. Why wouldn't you want to gather with the saints every Sunday to sing and to bless and to tell and to declare and to ascribe ever exceeding and expanding greatness to this God who outranks, outdoes, and outshines all others? 
Why wouldn't we want to encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, declaring the greatness of God, singing of the glory of God, telling of his salvation through Jesus Christ, and blessing his name and reputation with brothers and sisters who are part of a family? Why would we neglect the gathering with the saints to sing every week? even more so as we look through the windshield of human history and see his day approaching. I'll close with this story. There's an Indian man at Home Ground Church in South Africa upon our most recent trip, and the leaders of that church were celebrating, I believe, their 30th anniversary, and so they brought up members of the congregation who had talked about the ministry the church had done in their lives and in their hopes for the church as it moved into the future. And as this man came up to the platform, he began to share about how God had worked in their life all across this past year, the past calendar year. And he said, one of the things that we did as a family is we made a commitment not to miss a Sunday. Not to miss a Sunday of worship when the church gathers. And he said, I stand before you and say we've missed three. We had the flu, <laughs> right? And we got sick. He said, but other than that, we've been here. Let me just ask you, what might God do in your life? How might he form you and shape you if you made it a habit to be with the church as we gather on Sundays and schedule other things around that as, in so far as you have control to do so? personal and corporate worship, they go hand in hand. Develop those habits in your life and see how God might form you through them because he is great and greatly to be praised. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it instructs us and teaches us, how it stirs our affections for you. And I pray this morning, God, more than anything, that as we leave, that you, we would leave with an impression upon our hearts. That worship is indeed our response to your reign. That you are great and greatly to be praised. That you outrank, outdo, and outshine all others. May that rest heavy on our souls as we go from this place today and lead us to a place of awe and reverence, fostering habits of personal and corporate worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, this morning we come to receive the Lord's table. And I just want to say a word about that. In, in the Gospels, when Jesus, prior to his crucifixion, he gathers with the disciples in the upper room, and he says something to them. He says, I'm about to inaugurate a new covenant. And he says, this bread that you're about to take, as they shared the Passover meal together, he said, it represents my body. And my body is about to be broken for you. He says, this blood, uh, the, uh, um, this cup you're about to take, he says, it represents my blood, which is about to be shed for you as I inaugurate this new covenant, this new promise. And he says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Part of what that means for us as a church is that 
the Lord's table, communion, we believe to be reserved for Christians, those who've placed their faith in Jesus. They've been born again. They've come to experience God personally. If that's you this morning, we invite you to the table to come and receive the bread and the cup, to remember the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. If that's not you this morning, you say, you know what? As you were talking about those two sides of God's judgment, I think I may fall under the first side because I've rejected him. I've rejected his reign in my life. I've rejected his offer of salvation. If that's you this morning, we would say, just stay where you are and observe as we come and take the Lord's table. But we would say, keep coming. Keep hearing about this Jesus who was crucified in our place, about this Jesus who is the light that shone into the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. That one day God may turn the light on for you and you may see him in all of his glory and respond to him in faith. But today, just stay seated. If you're a Christian, come forward, receive the cup. If you have questions about the sermon, I'll be at the back. I'd love to connect with you. Love to talk with you more about Jesus. If that's what you need this morning. But I invite you to stand this morning. The band's going to lead us in song. We're going to come forward, receive the cup together, and acknowledge our dependence upon God as we sing. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.